Okay, let's go ahead and let's move into our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. As I continue this study series, sermon series on the kingdom of God. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to his protege Timothy from prison. Paul's life is coming to an end and he is giving Timothy a charge. So hear the word of God. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the faith, finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The word of the Lord. God. Well, <clears throat> I've brought it up before, but I want to bring it up again because the clock continues to tick. This is what I call the jar. And if you're not familiar with the jar, the jar represents my life. I'm 48 years old, and as I study diligently the actuary tables, the average life of a human being in the United States is 78.6. That means there are 1,500 beads left in this jar. And every week, I take one out. It's a symbol of the hourglass of time as I draw closer and closer to the end of my life. I don't know if you have a jar. We often think that life will continue on in perpetuity. But the Lord teaches us something different in the scriptures, does he not? Teach us, O Lord, to number aright our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. For those 12 people who went to work that morning at the Virginia Beach Municipal Complex, I'm sure not one of them thought this would be the last day of my life. But it was. The reality is the 1,500 weeks is at best, isn't it? Nobody knows the day that is ordained for them. For as the scriptures say that every man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Life has a beginning, life has a middle, and life has an end. In fact, all things are like that, are they not? A marriage started off a beginning, I think, of Philip and his new bride as they begin their marriage together. And they will, with God's grace, continue on into those middle years and then hopefully live to a ripe old age. But I've been around long enough as a pastor to preach at a funeral where a husband or a wife is left grieving their, their spouse. Our career has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And as this scripture shows us, our race of faith has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Paul is at the end. He is telling us that the time for his departure has come. 
And he's speaking to Timothy, who's right in the middle of running the race. And he's giving them this wisdom, this charge, if you will. It's the charge that we should hear as well, for we all face the challenge. How do we run a good race? And not just the beginning, not just the middle, but all the way through the tape. See, there's an initial excitement, isn't there, to life or faith or marriage. But the challenge happens in the middle, in the slog, if you will, in the challenge to be faithful day in and day out. And it's been my experience that many do not finish well, that started off well. So Paul is teaching Timothy, and I am teaching you, that in the life of faith, there are three things we need to understand. Number one, there's a race that we have to run. Number two, there's a finish line that we have to cross. And then finally, number three, there's a crown that we get to wear. So we're going to walk through these stages of the race. Number one, the race to run. Paul speaks to Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. We must understand that Paul has a special relationship with Timothy. He calls Timothy, he says that he is Timothy's father in the faith. He's his spiritual father and speaks to him as a spiritual son, almost like a physical son. They have a deep and enduring relationship. And Paul speaks to him as a mentor, as one who has gone before him. You know, everybody in their life should have three relationships. You should have a Paul, you should have a Timothy, and you should have a Barnabas. Maybe not all at one time, but these are important relationships. What do I mean by that? Timothy had a Paul, somebody older than him, to speak into his life, to talk about faith and the challenges of the journey. And this is a call not only to our older people in the congregation to become a Paul to someone, but to the younger people in our congregation to reach out to them, to seek to learn from them. Everybody should have a Timothy. Who am I pouring my life into, spiritually speaking? Maybe it's your children in this stage of your life. Maybe it's someone else in your ministry, someone younger than you, someone that you can pour into. But my life, my Christian life is not for me alone. It's for me to also speak into other people's lives. And finally, a Barnabas. If you remember, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, was one to come alongside Barnabas was a friend to help his fellow uh, disciples when they were down and struggling. Who's in your life who's a Barnabas? Who are you being a Barnabas to? It's important to have a Paul, a Timothy, and a Barnabas. And so Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he gives him this charge. But notice who he gives him the charge by. I give you this charge in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He charges him by God himself and his son, Christ Jesus. Because ultimately, Paul is not the judge of Timothy's life, as I am not the judge of your life. It is God who judges both the living and the dead. It is God whose kingdom in the end will reign over all and who has all authority under him right now. 
It is God who will appear at the proper moment in the person of Christ Jesus who will usher in all of these things. And so in the end, it's the highest charge because it's by the highest judge, Jesus Christ. And so Paul gives him this charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, Timothy is a minister of the gospel. He's a pastor that Paul has appointed, and he has a task. His calling, if you will, is to minister the gospel through preaching the word. Timothy was doing exactly what I was doing, uh, what I'm doing right now. And his job is to preach the word when he feels like it and when he doesn't feel like it. In season and out of season. In other words, faithfully, again and again, week after week, moment by moment. And in the process of preaching the word, he is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To reprove means to correct with gentleness. So he's to reprove gently, he's to gently direct them. But sometimes he's also to rebuke them. That's much more of a criticism that is more pointed and more stark. But he's also to exhort them. He's to encourage them to continue to run the race of faith. And how is he supposed to do this? With complete patience and teaching. This is not an easy task. And yet this is the charge that is given to Timothy. Now why is Paul saying these things? Well, he's saying these things because he knows the future. For the time is coming, Paul says, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Notice, Timothy, there are going to be bumps in your ministry. Down the road, no matter how faithful you are in preaching, there are some who will not endure your sound teaching. There are some who will criticize you, who will attack you, who will abandon the church. And they will rather accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They're going to pick people to tell them what they want to hear. And in fact, they're going to tell you that if you don't start telling me what I want to hear, I'm going to do my best to get you out of here. Now, of course, this brings up the, reason, the question, why preach at all? This sounds like a terrible job description. The reason is a couple of things. Number one, it says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It doesn't say how many people. It doesn't say all people. Rather, we know from the scriptures that it will be some teacher, some people. And the second reason, Timothy, is you're not in the end doing it for them. You're doing it for God. Ultimately, you are accountable to one person, the judge who will judge the living and the dead, the king of kings who will appear. And it doesn't matter if all respond to your message or all turn away. You're doing it for God. And so, Timothy, in verse 5, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He's saying, Timothy, you've got to be sober-minded. You've got to get serious. You've got to be self-controlled. You've got to be in this for the long haul. 
And you've got to be ready to take some arrows because you are going to endure suffering for the task that, I, that God has for you. Be an evangelist. In other words, be on the offensive. Do not shrink back from the call to preach the gospel and fulfill your ministry. Run it to the end. Now you may be asking me, why are you preaching this particular passage? It may be applicable to you, Carlos, but I am not a pastor. So do these things really matter for me? I would say they do for two reasons. Number one, you have to ask yourself, am I one of those people? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and they will wander off. Could that be me? I assure you, the people who are sitting in the pew who went ahead and did that did not think they were in the wrong. They thought the pastor was in the wrong. And so we have to examine our own hearts. Do I come and do I hear the word and obey it? Or am I like a man or woman who looks in the mirror and then goes away forgetting what they look like? In other words, am I picking and choosing God's word? And God's word ultimately is for my consideration and not for my participation. Watch out, brothers and sisters, that you do not turn away from listening to the truth. And it's my job, and I will be accountable to God for it, to preach the word, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And I need to tell you all, in a rebuke, that for some of you, your Christianity is far too casual. You don't really listen to God's word. You don't really pursue Jesus throughout the week. There's opportunities in the church that we have given that we are creating for you so that everything you need to continue and push on in Christ Jesus is there as best as we can. And yet it's interesting how poorly attended some of our things are. Now, am I saying you need to go out to everything? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is be careful that pursuing Jesus Christ is not third or fourth or fifth on your list. He has to be first. He's worth all of your life. He bought you at a price. And so strain ahead and push ahead to follow Jesus Christ. And it's my job to encourage you, and it's also my job to kick you in the butt when you're not doing it. So that's point number one why this is important. Am I one of those people? Point number two is this, that you have a charge. It may not be the charge of a pastor, but it is a charge as one of God's children. You have a charge to be faithful in wherever God has put you as a husband or a wife, as a father or a mother, as a boss or an employee. God's word speaks to these things as well, does it not? If I'm a parent, God's charge is upon you to raise your kids, to follow and love Jesus. Demonstrate to them the face of God and how you pursue Christ. If I'm a husband, 
The charge upon me is to lay down my life for my spouse, to love her as Christ loved the church. If I have a job as an employee or a boss, it is to honor the Lord in the midst of whatever it is, butcher, baker, or candlestick maker. My job is to honor the Lord either in how I lead my people or in how I follow because everybody's a leader or a follower. Sometimes you're both. And the reality is if you are walking in obedience to Christ, you are going to experience suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says it this way, everyone who wants to live a godly life faces, will face persecution. And the race of faith is a slog day in, day out. And you can become discouraged. I don't know if you know the story of Henry Clay Morrison and his wife who were missionaries in Africa for 40 years. And they made many memories there of Africans turning their lives to Christianity. And each day brought joy and sorrow and pain and wonder. And finally, because of poor health, the mission board brought Henry and his wife back to the U.S. for retirement as teachers and encouragers for missions. And as the ship, they, they uh, sh sailed on this ship from the African continent to New York City. And as they got to New York City, there was a parade. There were balloons that were flying. There was a band that was playing. But it was not for Henry Morrison and his wife. It was for Teddy Roosevelt. This is a true story. Who had gone big game hunting in Africa for several weeks with an entourage. And as Teddy came back on this boat along with Henry Morrison, the band struck up and they played and they celebrated Teddy coming back from his Africa big game hunting. And as soon as he whisked off the gangplank and got into his car, the crowd began to disperse. Henry Morrison took his wife's hand and together they made their way down the now quiet gangplank to the empty docks. Not one person greeted them. They eventually hailed a cab to go to the one-bedroom apartment supplied by the mission board. Over the next few weeks, Henry tried but failed to put the incident behind him. He was sinking deeper into depression when one evening he said to his wife, this is all wrong. This man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody throws a big party. We give our lives in faithful service to God for all these many years, but no one seems to care. His wife cautioned him that he should not feel this way. Henry replied, I know, but I just can't help it. It isn't right. Henry, you know God doesn't mind if we honestly question him. You need to tell this to the Lord and get this settled now. You will be useless in his ministry until you do. And Henry Morrison then went into his bedroom and got down on his knees. And shades of Habakkuk began pouring out his heart to the Lord. Lord, you know our situation and what's troubling me. We gladly served you faithfully for years without complaining, but now, God, why can't I get this incident out of my mind? After about 10 minutes of fervent prayer, Henry, Henry returned to the living room with a peaceful look on his face. His wife says, it looks like you've resolved the matter. What happened? Henry replied, the Lord settled it for me. I told him how bitter I was that the president received this tremendous homecoming, but no one even met us as we returned home. When I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but Henry, you are not home yet. 
Paul is saying to Timothy, and I am saying to you, we have a race to run. And we're not home yet, are we? Because we're sitting right here. And it is a slog. And there are times when we want to throw up our hands and we want to quit. And it's then that we must remember God's charge to you and me to be God's ambassador and to be faithful wherever he's called you in whatever circumstance and situation. Because God has a plan for your life and we're not home yet. So this charge tells us there's a race to be run but there's also a finish line to be crossed. Timothy continues, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul uses the language of an Old Testament sacrifice, the drink offering. However, it's very interesting, a little bit about the drink offering, that God uh, told the Israelites that they were not to do a drink offering to the Lord until that they had arrived in the promised land. And the drink offering was to be a first fruits of the labor that they had done in the promised land. So a drink offering is wine. In other words, the first fruits of the crop, of the harvest, of the wine that was made was to be poured out to the Lord in the promised land. See, what Paul is saying is that the first fruits of my labor or of God's labor of the labor for the gospel of his life is being poured out in the relationships that he has impacted throughout his entire life as he's been a witness for Jesus Christ in his variety of circumstances he's not just speaking of his death he's speaking of his life I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and now there's just a little bit left, if you will. The time of my departure has come. Notice it says, not, it does not say that he is pouring out, but rather he is being poured out. It's in the passive tense. It's God who's doing this. It is God in whom my life is in his hands who is pouring out my life. God is drawing me home and my life is in his hands for the time of my departure has come. Almost sounds like he's at the airport, doesn't it? Doesn't seem too worried about dying. I think he's more excited about leaving and moving on and getting closer to his Lord. God is drawing him home. Well, this brings us perspective on our life as well. Have you ever thought of your life as an offering? As a labor of the Lord? For everything that is done in Christ is a gift to Christ. And God is pouring us out in little ways, maybe in big ways sometimes, out into the world. It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know, I thought about this as I was working on this sermon, that in the Christian life, living is dying. 
The Christian life is a perpetual dying to myself that I might live to Christ. It's a dying to the world that I might live to Him. It's dying to my flesh that screams go this way and living by faith in Christ that says go this way. And it's dying while living all the way up to our time of departure which might be in a hospital bed at the end of our life and it might be a sudden gunshot in a municipal building. Paul is ready and so we must be ready as well. Paul finishes with, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. All three of these are the same thing, by the way. He's just saying them in different ways. There's been a struggle, in other words, and I have battled. But in the end, I have kept the faith. Because this is the battle. Notice, this is everything to Paul. Crossing the finish line, that I have kept the faith. That I have continued to believe. Paul does not list here his merits, his accomplishments, everything that he's done in his religious life. But rather, in the end, the only thing that matters. For Paul is not saved by his moral living. He's not saved by his religious accomplishments. He's saved by keeping his faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's his righteousness. It's his way that he lived his life. It's how he died. It's how he rose again. That ultimately is our righteousness. Paul has zero faith in himself and he has 100% faith in Christ. In Philippians, he summed it up this way. For whatever was to my profit, in other words, whatever I had, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost everything. I consider it rubbish that I may, be, that I may gain Christ, being found in Him, having a righteousness not of my own, but rather a righteousness in Christ Jesus, a righteousness that is by faith. And so Paul crosses the finish line with his arms above. I have kept the faith. I have not Stop believing. I don't know if any of you know the name Robert Kipkoich Chariot. He won the Boston Marathon. He's from Kenya in 2006 at a blistering pace of 2.07. I came in 9,011th place in 2006 at a somewhat pedestrian pace of 3 hours and 41 minutes. You see, in 2006, there was only one winner. It was Robert Chariot. Everyone else was second place or back. Heck, even 9,000th place. But that's not the way heaven works. You see, the accomplishment in Christianity is finishing. In the Christian faith, to finish is to come in first place. Because we come in with Christ's number on our chest. All of his righteousness. See, he's already run the race. And he finished it. And he won. In fact, he was the only one who finished. 
And so when we finish this race of faith, we finish it not on our merits, but believing and trusting in Him. And everyone who gets to the end, who keeps the faith, is Robert Chariot. First place. So do you believe that? You may feel like right now in your Christian walk, man, I'm limping. I'm in last. And I want to quit. This is too hard. Forget this. The question is not, are you in last? The question is, are you still running? Because if you're still running, guess what? If you finish, you're in first. It's a fight. It's a race. And the world will say, give up on Jesus. And Paul said no, and so did Timothy. And so can you and I. The religious world will say, you don't have enough credits. You're going to fall short. You're not going to make it. And our answer is, we trust not in ourselves, but in Christ. Your friends might say, take your eyes off of him and put them on yourself. Look at how you're living. It's all wrong. But Paul kept his eyes on Christ. And we can too. And so as Paul crossed the line ignominiously in a Roman prison somewhere, he crossed to a cheering crowd. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I haven't had an opportunity to run a bunch of races. Here are my medals. It's not Vicky Manning medals, but it's not bad either. But amidst all of these medals, in the end, there's only one that matters to me. This is the Boston Marathon medal. And when you cross the finish line of the Boston Marathon, you get one of these. Doesn't matter if you were Robert Chariot or Carlos Rodriguez. You finish the race, you get the medal. And that's what Paul is saying. Henceforth, in other words, this is what's waiting for me. Even though I'm writing in this stank prison and I'm going to be beheaded, this is what is waiting for me. It's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. What does that exactly mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things, but I think this is what it means. I think it means the crown of a son, the crown of a daughter, the crown of celebration. The crown of you are as to me as my begotten son, Jesus. It's the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. It's the Lord that will put this on our head. The Lord himself on that day. And not only to me, not only to the Pauls of the world, not only to the Henry Morrison missionaries of the world, but to all who have loved his appearing. I think it would be pretty cool to be at that homecoming for Henry Morrison, wouldn't it? To see all the Africans, to see the angels, but most of all, to see the Heavenly Father 
to put on him the family robe and the family ring and the crown of righteousness. And so I finish simply with these three points. Faith is a race to be run. So keep running. Maybe start running. Maybe today is the first day that you get on the race and say, I want to run after Jesus Christ. There's a finish line. Don't stop. Go all the way through. It's about keeping the faith. I still believe. Whatever happens, I still believe. And remembering at the end of life, it's not what I've accumulated. It's not the roar of the crowd or the emptiness of the gangplank. It's the henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which my Lord, who is the righteous judge, will, appear, will award not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's the only race that's worthy to be run. So let's run it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that when we were running the wrong way, Jesus stepped in our place and ran in our place. And he endured death and suffering and pushed on until he won the victory. God, let us cling to nothing less than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And let us view with seriousness and sobriety the charge that you have upon our life <coughs> to run this race of faith with our eyes fixed on you. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.